Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's good to see you this morning. If you're watching online today, uh, we love you, we miss you. We hope that you are doing well and hope that when you're able, you're able to rejoin us here in person. I know some of you won't be able to. We want you to know that we are thinking about you uh, this morning. If you're new or newer or visiting this morning, my name is Jason Jackson. We wanna welcome you to New Life Downtown. New Life Downtown is one of the eight congregations of New Life Church here in Colorado Springs. We're committed as a family of churches, as one church with multiple congregations, to making disciples across the Pikes Peak region by inviting people to worship, to connect with one another, and to serve, to serve in the church, to serve in our city, and serve in our world, that others might come to know the grace and beauty and truth and wonder of Jesus Christ. We'd love to get to meet you and to learn more about you. If you're visiting, you can scan this QR code and that'll take you to a guest card to fill out and then our pastoral team will be able to do some follow-up with you. We'd also invite you to stop by the welcome area after service in the lobby. There's a big sign that says welcome. We have a gift for you. So if you could stop by there, that would be amazing. We can just get a chance to say hi. And then next Sunday after service, we do, uh, every couple months, we have a luncheon for anyone who's new. We call it New Life Next. It's so just a chance for those who are thinking about making New Life Downtown their home church or who have decided to make New Life Downtown their home church uh, to find out more information, for to hear a little bit more about our history and our values and our structure, as well as to be able to ask the questions that you have. So please join us next Sunday after service at the Commons. It's a block north and a block west. Uh, we have a little storefront there. We'd love to meet you for a free lunch and a time together. But now as we come together and worship, some of you are already standing. I want to invite the rest Let's stand today, and we want to turn our attention to Jesus, turn our attentions to the one that we love, turn our attention to the one who has rescued us and redeemed us. And the way that we're doing that right now in this season is for a few weeks, we're praying the Lord's Prayer together. It's a way of taking the words that Jesus himself taught us to pray and praying them together as a family. So let's pause just for a second, center our hearts on him. And let's pray this prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. Amen. Let's worship Jesus together this morning. We've come to stand before a holy God in reverence and awe. Lord, we open up our hearts. We've come to sing a song of praise to you. Have your glory. The starry host, you trace the mountain peaks, you paint the evening skies with wonders. The earth, it is your throne, from desert to the sea, 
All nature testifies your splendor. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Sing His greatness, all creation. Praise the Lord. Raise your voice, you heights and all you depths, from furthest east to west. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. We praise the Lord. This is the truth. You reached into the dust and love your spirit breathes. You formed us in your veins. works to tell your marvelous deeds to join the everlasting chorus praise the lord praise the lord sing his greatness all creation praise the lord and raise your voice you hearts and all from furthest seas to west, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Let symphonies resound, let drums and choirs ring out. All heaven hear the sound of worship. Let every nation bring its honors to the King. A roar of harmonies, eternal praise the Lord. Just near and far, from sky to sea to shore, sing out forevermore. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Yeah. We sing to a holy God, our Creator, the one who breathed life in us. Oh, you hold all things together, God. You hold it all together. Let's give him praise the other family. Let's give him praise. Praise the Lord. We bless your name, God, with all that's in us today, holding nothing back. You're the highest king. You deserve the highest praise. We bow down and surrender today. In the darkness we were waiting without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was
was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt. Let's lift it up and sing together now. Oh, praise the
Sing praise, praise. Righteous King. Can we say this together? Think about that love as we sing. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my King, would die for me? Thank you for the cross, O oh Lord. Amazing love, I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you in all I Just your voices. You sing. You sing. You.
together. Thank you, Lord.
this morning? Do you believe that there's power in the name of Jesus? Before Jesus even came to earth, the people of God were singing songs like this, that there's a Savior coming who's going to break every chain. He's going to set the captives free. And the most amazing thing happened. A baby was born in the most humble of ways, in a manger, in a dirty place, a place none of us want to have a baby And some people said, this can't be the Savior who's coming to break every chain. Some people got it confused and said, I want him to break my chain and captivate the captives who've been captivating me. And that's not what he came to do. Jesus grew up and then he, he started to do things like have meals with people. He started to do things like point out Zacchaeus who most people overlooked and say, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And a chain fell off. He met with a woman at the well who was an outcast. No one else would talk to. And he met her there on purpose. And a chain fell off. A prostitute broke a jar of perfume that was worth a year's wages over his feet. And people wanted to rebuke her for it. Instead, Jesus says, don't rebuke her. Look to her as an example. And another chain fell off. 
He had dinner with Mary and Martha and all the disciples, and he broke bread with all these people. And as he was doing it, chains were falling off left and right. If we're not careful, we'll miss him. Our expectations have to align with God's, not his to ours. If his, we try to make his align with ours, we will miss him. We need to say, where are you, God? What are you doing in this world? And friends, that is why I love Alpha. That is why I stand up here and I push Alpha all the time because it's a simple meal. And I think there's an expectation. This is put on by the church. We're going to come in. We're going to have some questions and the church is going to preach at us because that's what we've done pretty well, I think, for the past hundreds of years is preach at people. But instead, we share a meal and we say, I'm really sorry that happened to you. And I struggle with that too. And I don't know if I have a good answer of how God could allow that to happen and still be good. But I'm trusting that Jesus is here. And we've seen chains start to fall off of people at Alpha. So we are starting another Alpha course. You guys can have a seat really quick. I want you guys to watch this video. It's going to share a little bit about Alpha. There isn't a single person on this planet who was meant to be alone. We all, to one degree or another, carry within us a deep sense that we were made for something. Most people go their whole lives living out of wounds. How do I find myself? The question of why we're here. What does it mean to belong? We often seek belonging only to get counterfeit versions of it. I'll tell you what it's not. It's not fitting in, because fitting in requires you to compromise yourself. Fitting in demands that you perform. Fear is preoccupation with the approval of others. What am I missing out on? Who am I if I don't have a plan to look forward to? There are endless expressions, but it's fear, not love, motivating each one. When the story you're living in has you at the center of it, that you're no longer able to function in a way that's required for you to achieve all those things that our culture has decided are essential for living life to the full, it's like trying to fit inside a box that's too small. Is there a better story? Our heart's restlessness, it speaks to that deep sense within us that we were in fact made for something more. You're here on purpose for a purpose. You can't repair a view of yourself without repairing a view of God. Belonging is profoundly better than fitting in. To belong is to be seen, to be known, to be understood, and to be accepted. We all want to belong. We all need it. Our souls long for it. Even though the world may not know you, God knows you. You are loved loved right now without qualification or restriction, loved unconditionally, loved in a way you cannot lose. As we stay close to God and contribute from a place of love, we'll start to experience the more that we were made for. It's a story of discovering a loving pursuer hidden in plain sight and equally discovering myself as beloved. You don't need to try to fit in because belonging is found in God. All right, so some of you might um, be asking some of those questions yourself. Uh, and if so, I want to encourage you to come to Alpha. And some of you might know some people who are really wrestling and asking those questions. 
And if so, I want to encourage you to invite them to come to Alpha with you. Um, we're starting Tuesday, September 19th, and uh, we share a meal together and we ask these tough questions and we wrestle together of where is God in the mess of life? And uh, so I would love for um, you to come if you, like I said, if you are struggling, if you have a lot of questions, if you're wrestling, if you're lonely, if you're anxious, if you're feeling depressed, any of that stuff, come to Alpha and share a meal on Tuesday nights with us. Um, so we've been asking you to um, give generously towards Alpha so we can do these Alpha courses. We've done two so far this year. We're, this will be our third one uh, that we'll do this year. And you guys have been so generous to give above and beyond uh, your normal tithes and offerings to give to Alpha so we can do these three times a year. Um, and we are almost to our goal already. Uh, so we have asked um, if you guys could give to help raise $35,000, and that includes meals and retreats and all the things that we do um, through an Alpha course. Uh, and anything above and beyond is going to go to our friends in Albania who are missionary friends, and they're also running Alphas over there. Uh, and we are 31,000 of 35,000 the way there. So we have four more thousand to go. So if I could, again, just encourage you uh, to continue the generosity to push through our goal, that would be amazing. And thank you so much to those of you who have given towards Alpha. Uh, we're going to put up, um, I am going to pray during this moment. This is a moment of prayer, but I'm going to do that at the end of all of this. So we can just pray for Alpha. We can pray for the offering. We can pray for the scripture reading, all of it. So um, we're going to put up on the screen just um, four ways to give. Uh, and this is what we do every Sunday. We ask that you give as an act of worship to generously give back to God what he's so graciously given to us. Um, and if you want to do that, there's four ways to do that that are on the screen. If you give on the app or online, there's a drop-down menu, and you can select New Life Downtown to make sure that your off, uh, offering goes to the right designated spot. And in that same drop-down menu is a uh, spot for an Alpha designated give. So if you'd like to give to Alpha as well, that's how you can give towards that. All right, we're going to turn towards the scriptures, but as we do, I'm going to pray for all of this. I'm going to pray for Alpha this next round, and I'm going to pray for our offerings, um, that as it, the offerings come in, um, the generosity of our church goes back out to our city, and we are generous people to our city, and then um, pray for the word. So will you pray with me? Father, we give all of this to you. I want to ask first that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see you and where you're at. You're still breaking chains like you have been since the beginning of creation. And when you came in bodily form, the image of the invisible God, you had to write our theology. You had to show us and explain to us what the Old Testament meant and show us how you have been the center of it the whole time. Father, and now 2,000 years after you've come and gone from this, this world in, in bodily form and your spirit's here, we still need your help. We need your help to see you. And so we pray for things like Alpha, Lord. Those people are coming in with um, legitimate questions and legitimate hurts and legitimate pain. Father, we pray that over a meal, you would meet with them. And Father, you'd continue to do what you've been doing since the beginning of time, which is breaking down walls, breaking down chains, changing our perspective, aligning our perspective with yours. Father, help us. Help us to see you as we are meant to see you, 
not through the glasses that we want to wear. And, and I, my theology has changed 20 times over my life, and every time it changes, yours does too. Because I think I'm correct. So would you help me? Would you align our will with yours? And Father, with Alpha, would you do it again? Would you meet more people, bring them back to your, your kingdom, to your church? Father, we pray for the waters of baptism to be filled with people coming back, prodigal sons and daughters returning. And Father, would you speak to us now this morning as we turn to listen to your word and hear from uh, your word through First Kings, would you speak to us? Would you speak through these readers as, as they're reading your word? Would you speak through Jason as he's doing his best to preach your word? Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Good morning, my name is Dan. The Old Testament reading is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. You are that man, Nathan told David. This is what the Lord God of Israel says. I anointed you king over Israel and delivered you from Saul's power. I gave your master's house to you and gave his wives into your embrace. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. If that was too little, I would have given even more. Why have you despised the Lord's word by doing what is evil in his eyes? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and taken his wife as your own. You used the Ammonites to kill him. Because of that, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite as your own, the sword will never leave your own house. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is Eddie. Um, we'll re be reading from the New Testament. Read, the reading is found in Philippians 2, 5, verse, I mean, chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ, though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God, something to exploit, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and becoming like human beings when he found himself in the form of a human. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on across the word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Sylvia. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Matthew 26, verses 50 through 54. But Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of those with Jesus reached for his sword. Striking the priest's slave, he cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put the sword back into its place. 
All those who use a sword will die by the sword. Or do you think that I'm not able to ask my father and he will send to me more than 12 battle groups of angels right away? But if I did that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled that say this must happen? The gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the scriptures tell us that your mercy is new every morning. So here we are again. Your people gathered in your place, in your name, on the morning of the first day of the week as the people of God have gathered since the resurrection. And we're asking for new mercy today. Would your mercy meet us in the mess of our lives? Would it meet us in the messes that we've made? Would it meet us in the mess that other people have made? And meet us in the mess of the brokenness and the longing of the world? Would we encounter your mercy? And would chains break off even as we study your scripture and come to your table? We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's great to see you this morning. Uh, before we dive into the scriptures, just want to give you a quick family update. Uh, many of you know that we've spent, uh, today is now 30 out of the last 39 days in the hospital with our oldest daughter, Cora. Uh, all complications due to um, an appendicitis uh, that ruptured and then abscessed and created all kinds of uh, continuing issues from there. She and Sarah are still uh, up in Denver today, um, but she's been making slow progress uh, since last week. So over the last couple of days, yeah. Slow and hard progress, but we're moving forward. She's been able to um, keep liquids in earlier this week, and then later on this week, she was able um, to keep down solids, and so she's starting to eat again, and, um, you know, the digestive system has woken up, so we're starting to see signs that um, hope is on the horizon. She still has uh, one drain in. They've removed the other uh, four drains that they had, um, draining abscesses and infections. There's just one left. We're hoping that will come out either today or tomorrow, starting to wean her off all of the, um, you know, uh, IV nu nutrients and IV um, painkillers and those things. And there's hope that if she continues to progress, that they might be able to come home this week. Um, so that would be uh, amazing. We don't know exactly when yet, but... That is our hope, but thank you again for your prayers, for your patience, uh, for your grace, for your mercy, uh, for the kindness and the care that you have shown to us uh, over these many, many uh, long weeks now. One of the things that um, has been a delight for us in the middle of these times is some of the care packages that we've received in the hospital. One of them, the student ministry volunteers uh, sent Cora a care package when we were in the first hospital in Wichita, and it included this game, The Bible is Funny. Anybody seen this game before? Uh, it's, it's like a biblical version of apples to apples uh, is sort of what it is. So you have, if you're familiar with apples to apples, you get some sort of uh, card that is the prompt card um, that, you know, then signals what other cards that you should play. So there's a prompt card, and then after that, all of the other response cards are scripture verses um, taken out of context that you then associate with that card. So, for example, I was going through them last night, and one of the prompts is, my high school experience in a nutshell was... 
And then you've got in your hand, you know, a set of cards. So here, like my high school experience in a nutshell was Ecclesiastes 1-2. Meaningless, meaningless, <laughs> utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. <laughs> or Psalm 6-6. All night long I fled my bed with weeping and drenched my couch <laughs> with tears. Or another option, my high school experience in a nutshell, they were surprised to find him talking with a woman. Interestingly, my, my youngest daughter, Lila, I think has won every game that we have played. <laughs> like, it turns out she is the comedian in the family. But the Bible, the Bible is funny. There's times when we read the Bible, not just out of context, but sometimes when we read the Bible in context that it's funny. There's also times when we read the Bible, it's inspiring, it's beautiful, it's redemptive, but it's also challenging. <laughs> It's really confusing. It's frustrating. At times, it's tragic. Often, it's raw. Sometimes, it's disturbingly raw or even offensively raw. And that's where we find ourselves today. We're in the middle of actually the second week in a series through 1 Kings, a series that we're calling Kings and Kingdoms. First and Second Kings were originally one book. And they tell the story of Israel from David's death and Solomon's ascension through the division of the United Kingdom into two, to the fall of the northern kingdom, to the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. It begins in the death of David. It ends in the exile of God's people. It is a difficult book. And it's an ancient theological account of the monarchy. It is in every way unglossed. It is painfully honest in its accounts and its assessment of God's people and their leaders. A full and careful reading of 1 Kings sounds like a BC version of the Godfather. It, it, you're reading it going like, like mob hits happening left and right. I'm sure someone's putting a fish in a bed at some point in time or a horse's head or whatever it was. I can't even remember anymore. And there's times that we read the Bible and we're, we, we read the frankness of it and we're not sure what to do with it. We shouldn't take the Bible's frank, the frankness about the realities of life on the ground. We shouldn't mistake the Bible's frankness for acceptance. We shouldn't see its candor as validation of what it is that the people of God are doing, even those who have been anointed to lead. The characters of the Bible, even its heroes, are flawed. They're deeply flawed. And some of their deeds are shocking and even repulsive to us at this point in time. And one of the challenges of reading the scripture is that the Bible's condemnation is not always apparent to us. We read these stories and we're waiting for God to bring down the hammer and sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes it is. Sometimes we get a clear, immediate, uh, very decisive indication of how God feels about what just happened. But most of the time, it requires that we read in context. That we read the whole story and not just take pieces of it and apply it in whatever way that we want. 
It requires that we read backwards and know what has happened before, what God has said, and that we read ahead, linger longer in the text to be able to see what it is that the Bible is actually saying when we get to the end of the story. Sometimes when we zoom in, we can't quite see it, but when we zoom out and take the whole Bible in context, we can see more. But the Bible assumes that we know some things and assumes that we know some things when we're coming into a book like 1 Kings. We talked about some of this last week, that the writer assumes we know some of the background coming into the monarchy. We talked about three things specifically last week. First, the scripture writers are assuming that we know Deuteronomy chapter 12, that the king is responsible for centralizing worship in Jerusalem in order that the people of God may worship God in a way that's consistent with his character. Because every time worship goes sort of out into the margins of the, uh, of the nation, they start worshiping like the other nations do. They start worshiping other gods and worshiping God in ways that are inconsistent with his character. They also have in mind Deuteronomy chapter 17, that the king is supposed to act in certain ways. That Israel can have a king, but their king cannot act like other kings. Their kings cannot take and take and take and take, but the temptation is going to be to take multiple wives in order to either make political allegiances with other nations or to just to ensure offspring and to build sort of a larger kingdom within that sense and try to control the outcome. The king should not take multiple horses and chariots and rely on military power. And the king should not take and take and take all of the gold and silver from the people and rely on economic power. Instead, the king should be someone who gives. The king should be someone who serves. The scriptures assume we know that this is what kings should do. And it assumes that we know 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God has made a covenant with David and said, David, someone from your line, someone from your lineage will always reign on the throne forever. And that God is ruthlessly faithful to his promises, even when his people are ruthlessly unfaithful to their end of the deal. But God continues to be faithful, even foolishly and frustratingly so, in the midst of other people's unfaithfulness. These are images, ideas, uh, thoughts, stories that we're supposed to have in the back of our mind. And another one we just read a few minutes ago, 2 Samuel chapter 12, the consequences of sin. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that the prophet Nathan confronts King David after he has taken Bathsheba who's identified over and over again as the wife of Uriah. He's taken her, done the very thing he should not do, and then executed her husband as a way to cover it up. There's an egregious and violent violation of God's expectations for him. And David repents. David's confronted by the prophet. He repents, and he's forgiven, and yet there are still repercussions. Nathan says, the sword will never leave your own house. Because of David's violent acts, there will continue to be violence in David's household. And that prophecy becomes painful reality. It's a painful reality that haunts David and his family and his court and all that come after it afterwards. David's first and oldest son, Amnon, was killed by his half-brother after he committed horrific acts and raped his half-sister. His second son, disappears from the story. We presume that he died at some point. His third son, Absalom, tries to overthrow his father, takes the throne and exiles David out until he's killed by David's own general so that David can come back into the throne. 
And all that happens before 1 Kings. And 1 Kings, it opens with David now old. He's come to the very end of his life. And he's depicted as impotent, both physically and politically. He's come to this place where his power is waning in every way. And the story involves the exploitation of a woman who's treated like a pawn in their political game. It's a story that's all too tragic and true sometimes in the scriptures of the way that women are mistreated in ways that break God's heart. The struggle ensues then as David's power is waning between his oldest son, Adonijah, and his 10th son, Solomon. All these kids because he's taken multiple wives, the very thing that he wasn't meant to do. And both of these sons gather their backers together and they start to sort of position themselves to take over the throne, knowing that all of their political maneuvering and all of their conflict, if they lose, might mean their death and the death of those, their entourage around them. By the end of the first chapter, due to some shrewd maneuvering by the prophet Nathan and Bathsheba, Solomon's mom, David hands the, kings, the keys of the kingdom to Solomon. And his brother Adonijah, his whole party disperses. And Adonijah himself is left grasping the horns of an altar, begging for the mercy of God to come through Solomon. In chapter two, David's final words to the crown prince, to Solomon, begin with this wise counsel. We read them, we're like, yes, David, that's such good advice to pass down to your son. I hope I have something good to say to my kids at the end of my life. And then he keeps talking. You're like, David, why didn't you just stop? <laughs> Instead, he goes on and he starts telling Solomon to settle old scores for him. Gives him a hit list of people that he thinks Solomon should take out and other people that he's trying to pay back debt and asking Solomon to protect. And then David dies and Solomon goes about his business exiling or eliminating his rivals to secure his throne. By the end of the second chapter, Abathar, one of David's priests, is exiled away. Joab, David's once trusted general, Adonijah, the second or the oldest living son, and Shimei have all been killed. They've all been executed on Solomon's orders. And this is the Bible. <laughs> and I read these chapters like, what are we supposed to do with that? Like, how are we supposed to preach that text on a Sunday morning? What do we do with that in our devotionals? You know, in our read through the Bible for the year. Oh, okay. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. I think I'm going to go have some more coffee now. And then we're left with the question, where's God in the middle of that? People use his name. They invoke his promises, but he doesn't speak. There's no direct action taken by God in these couple chapters. So what do we do with them? I think so often narratives in the scriptures for us are meant to serve as cautionary tales. To teach us the negative examples of how not to live in God's kingdom. And we zoom out in a larger narrative we could see that somehow, mysteriously, and in ways that are easy to miss, God was present in this mess of things. Though we don't hear God speak and we don't see God act, somehow, in his own faithfulness, God is working in and through the, faith, the failures of his own people to bring about his plans, to bring about his redemption. Stories are meant to give us hope that in our own failures, in our own mess, 
in the own moments of our lives where we feel like God is absent when he's not speaking and it doesn't seem like he's taking direct action, that maybe God is still at work in ways that we can't see and understand. But as our lives zoom out, we may be able to see how God is even redeeming our messes. And these narratives generate for us a longing for something different, a longing for a different kind of world and a longing for a different kind of king. And so we're going to dive in today and to see how those things come up for us in this text and say to Jesus what he might teach us through the negative examples of folks. We're going to begin in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. It says that Donajah Haggith's son bragged about himself and said, you know what? David's done. I'll rule as king myself. And so he got in his chariot with his horses and 50 runners to go in front. He stages a great display. In the Old Testament, in the original language, it says he exalted himself. He lifted himself up. Likely he believed he was entitled to this. He was the oldest living son. He was the next in line. The scripture says elsewhere that he was handsome, something that everybody wants in their king. And he was popular with certain groups of people. So when the opportunity presented itself, he acted arrogantly. And he said, I'll take the throne. And his pride led to his fall. And it has over and over and over and over again for the people of God and for others. What we learn from this text is that self-exaltation is a form of self-harm. Self-exaltation, promoting ourselves, lifting ourselves up, bragging about ourselves, seizing opportunities as a way to grasp and control at power and to elevate ourselves above others leads to our own destruction. It leads to the dismantling of our lives and our souls. And I'm not talking about self-advocacy here. There's a difference between self-exaltation and self-advocacy. If you need help, if you're being mistreated, if something is happening in the workplace that is unjust, in any of those situations and in so many more, it's critically important that we use our God-given voice to advocate for what is rights. But self-promotion, self-exaltation is different. And yet it has become the common way of acting in our culture. Just open any social media app on your phone right now. And it is self-exaltation. Walk around the workplace and listen to the conversations that are happening. So many times there is self-exaltation happening in the midst of conversations. Sometimes it's born out of a sense of entitlement. I've been here longer. I know this. This should be my turn. This should whatever we can tell the story about. Oftentimes it's fueled by an overestimation of ourselves and a view of ourselves that we think everybody else should share. We think everybody else should think about us the way that we think about us. And so we're going to promote, we're going to exalt, we're going to go after, we're going to continually put our name in the hat for everything and believe that if we're not given the opportunity that a great injustice has happened. Sometimes that is true, but oftentimes there's something else that's going on. What we learn from the scriptures is that self-exaltation is contrary to the way of Jesus the New Testament tells us to let the same attitude be in us that was in Christ Jesus, 
who did not consider equality with God something to be exploited for his own advantage, but instead humbled himself and took on the very nature of a servant. He became a human and became obedient to death on a cross, and in his humility, God exalted him. What we learn from the scriptures is not to practice self-exaltation, which will eventually lead in us being humiliated and embarrassed and destroyed, but instead to practice humility and to let God exalt us, to let others exalt us, to sit in the back of the room and to be called forward. Jesus is continually teaching us to take the slow, low, quiet, humble road of humility and to trust God in the midst of it. Self-exaltation is a form of self-harm. The second thing we can learn is found in the next few chapters. This is this. Now Adonijah's father, had, this is David. Now Adonijah's father had never given him direction. Never. The original language says he never rebuked him. And he never questioned why Adonijah did anything he did. Instead, he was very handsome. There it is. And he was born after Absalom, and he took advice, meaning he's the oldest living kid right now. He took advice from Joab, Zariah's son, and from the priest Abathar, and they assisted him. But Zadok, the priest, and Jehoiada's son, and Benaiah, and the prophet Nathan, and Shimei, and his friends, and David's veterans, they didn't join him. And so he prepared the lamb and oxen and fatted calf at the stone next to Enrogel, and he invited his brothers, the royal princes, and all the citizens of Judah who were royal servants to him, but he did not invite the prophets. He did not invite Benaiah, which is another military leader. He did not invite David's veterans, those trusted advisors around him, or his brother Solomon. His father never rebuked him, never questioned him. He surrounded himself with advisors who would most benefit from his promotion. He excluded anyone who might be in any way opposed to him. He found agreement and he called it advice. And it's just foolishness. We need people to speak into our lives. We need people to encourage us, to believe in us, to champion us, to comfort us. But if every voice in our life is an echo, we should be wary. If every voice in our life is an echo, we should be wary. Because we also need people to challenge us, to expose us to new thoughts and new ideas and differences of opinion and other ways of thinking and other ways of seeing things. And we even need people to rebuke us. Who in your life can disagree with you? Who in your life can tell you no? Can God? Can God? When is the last time, if we think about our life with Jesus, when is the last time that the Spirit corrected us or redirected us? If the voice of God never disrupts our lives, it's probably not his voice. If it never disrupts us, if it never disturbs us, if it never challenges us, if it never calls us out on our stuff, then it's probably not the voice of God because the Hebrew says that God disciplines those that he loves, that he guides us into paths of righteousness for his name's sake, that he corrects us, that he challenges us, 
that he reveals things to us with kindness and with mercy and grace and the right time and just as we need all of those things. But he does correct us. One of the saddest lines in this whole passage is that his father never, his father never rebuked him. His father never questioned him. At times we need to be questioned by those who love us. We need to be questioned by those who are for us. We need to be questioned by those who are also our greatest champions. At times we need that in our lives. We need that voice. And at times we need to be that voice for one another. We need to question those that we love. We need to rebuke as an act of love. We've been told in our culture that love just agrees with whatever anyone's thinking or wanting to do at any point in time. And we're just supposed to say, "Uh uh-huh, that sounds great. And that that's what love is. No, love says hard things. Love speaks the truth. Love calls out the best. Love does not let people walk into ways of destruction and say, oh, I hope it's a wonderful time. Love says, no, where you're going is only going to lead to death. Love risks saying hard things. When we live in echo chambers... We live with just people around us telling us everything that we want to hear and agreeing with every thought that we've ever had and thinking the same way about every issue that we've ever thought about. When we live in those kinds of echo chambers, those on the outside can never become dissenting friends. They can only be enemies. When we live in echo chambers, we never develop dissenting friends who we need for our own growth and faith. All we have is enemies, and when all we see is enemies to be defeated, we eventually think that eliminating the opposition is the only solution to our problems. That everything in life would just be better if we could eliminate everybody that thinks differently about this that we do. The extreme version of that position is the belief that is so common in our world that violence is a path to peace. In 1 Kings chapter 2, Solomon goes this exact route. He eliminates every opposition, either through banishment or through punishment. And it says at the very end of chapter 2, it says, And then the king commanded Benaiah, Jehoiada's son, who went and attacked Shimei, and he died too. It's the very last of his execution orders. And then it says, And in these ways, royal power was handed over to Solomon. It's a bit ironic. All of this takes place in Jerusalem. All of this is led by Solomon. Both names derive from the Hebrew word for peace. And yet all we see through this book is violence and betrayal and suspicion and maneuvering. And at the end, what we get is a false and fragile peace at best. The sword that has haunted David's house haunts Solomon's house, and haunts Rehoboam's house, his son's son and son and son, and it keeps going. And what we learn throughout the scriptures is that violence can only make empty promises. Violence can never actually bring peace. Violence just begets violence. It cannot give birth to peace. In our gospel reading, Jesus said that those who live by the sword will die by the sword. True peace lasting peace 
the kind of peace that we all long for, the peace that the scripture's envisioning, which is a full flourishing of humans in relationship to God and one another and the world that has been gifted to us. The full flourishing, the kind of shalom of the scriptures is not found through violence, but includes the end of violence. This is the Bible's version of the world to come. It is a world without war. It's a world that the prophets imagined where people would beat their swords into plowshares and train for war no more. This is the followers of Jesus, is the world that we long for, the world that we hope for, the world that we're working toward, even in the midst of all of the mess that's all around us. We're longing for that kind of peace. And the longing for that kind of peace accompanies with us a longing to serve a different kind of king. And this is our call as the people of God to serve a different king, to be citizens of a different kind of kingdom. King Jesus did not inflict violence. He suffered it. He suffered violence in order to end violence and to bring peace. So many times we're in situations where we think, you know, if I just make a threat here, if I just have a violent outburst, if I just go this step and let my rage go, let my anger go, if I resort to this kind of tactic, if I go toward abuse or toward threat or toward violence or toward any of these things, this will end this and all of a sudden we'll be able to move forward and it'll be fine. And every time that we choose that path, something inside of us is broken. The Spirit of God comes to forgive us and to heal us something that's also broken inside of others and we're meant to then come alongside and do repair and to ask for forgiveness. Because peace and flourishing is not found in violence, it's found in the end of it. The kings of the kingdom were handed over to Jesus when he humbled himself, when he became human, when he became a servant even to the point of death and death on a cross. And therefore, because he took that path, that road, God exalted him and gave him the name that is above every other name, that every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is king. The royal power was handed over to Jesus in an entirely different way than it was handed over to Solomon. And so when to read these passages that are raw and full of so much violence and pain and things that we look at and go, I don't know what to do with this. We're called once again to zoom out and to see the king of kings. To remember that there is a different kind of king and there is a different kingdom. And that we have already been made citizens of his kingdom and though we live in a world where there is still mess all around us. We can zoom out and remember that there is a king who entered into the mess with us. There's a king that entered into the mess of our lives, the mess that other people made in our lives, the mess of the world all around us. He came, the anointed one, into the midst of the mess, and he suffered all of the violence of this world in order to defeat that violence and to bring about a different kingdom. And we're now called as his followers, to live in a different way because we walk and follow the teachings. We live under the rule, a different kind of king, a king who did not come to take, but a king who came.
to give. As the worship team comes forward and we come to the table reminded of this way of Jesus every single week here at communion. The king who gives his life. The king who suffered violence. That violence might end and that we might be healed from the violence that's been inflicted upon us and forgiven for the violence that we have inflicted upon others. Friends, this is Jesus' table, and all who believe that Jesus is the true king of the world are welcome to receive here, regardless of your church background or affiliation. If that's not you, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming and joining us. But maybe today, you're in a position where you're like, actually, I have been thinking about Jesus for a long time, and I'm ready to put my trust in him. I'm ready to follow him. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a follower of Jesus then you're welcome to begin following Jesus by joining us here at this table. We're going to confess our sin. We're going to ask for forgiveness. We're going to place our trust in him for salvation and say, God, help us. And then we receive the spirit of God to help us live out his ways in the world. So please join us in this prayer of confession this morning. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Friends, it's my joy to announce good news to all of us today. Words that are true because of what Jesus has done. So would you open up your hands and receive the new and fresh mercy of God once again today. Jesus died for us while we were yet sinners. This proves, this demonstrates, this confirms, this in every way shows God's love toward us. So in the name of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. And the peace of the Lord be with you. As those who have been raised to new life in Christ, would you stand and greet one another and pass the peace of Jesus to one another this morning. Well, friends, Jesus is here. <laughs> Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. All the room, would you take a moment and give him thanks for his love, for his mercy, for him coming into our mess. Because it is a good and joyful thing always and everywhere to give thanks to you, Father, the Almighty One. You formed us in your image. You breathed your very life into us. And when our love failed, as it has so many times in so many ways, your love has always and forever remained steadfast. When we were unfaithful, you did the most surprising and remarkable thing and sent your son Jesus to be faithful on our behalf 
to be the king that we need, the king we never could be. And on the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, our Lord Jesus took bread. When he had blessed it, he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup of wine and when he given thanks, he gave it to them and he said, drink of this, all of you. This is my blood of a new covenant which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sin. And so whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. And in remembrance of God's mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we proclaim together the mystery of our faith. That Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Friends, this table is not only a place of remembrance, but it's a place of encounter. where We encounter the ongoing active work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so let's sing this prayer this morning and ask the Spirit to move among us, to light the flame of the church once again. Amen. As our servers come forward, friends, these are the gifts of God. They have been given for us, the people of God. And so receive them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. If this is your first time here with us, you can scan the QR code that's here on the screen. that will give you some instructions. Or you can just watch what everyone else is doing as we come forward to the table. If you're unable to come forward, please ask someone next to you to bring the elements to you. If you're in the balcony, you're invited to either receive elements there at the table or come down and join the section here uh, on my left, your light. But let's worship as we come to the table together today.
Amen. A couple of really quick things before you go. Uh, in addition to praying for Cora, this summer you've been praying for the Redolls. William is here today. Uh, so you see William. William, we're so glad you're back, buddy. We missed you, man. Uh, they were up in Denver for 44 days uh, going through William's surgery and rehab and all of those things. So William, we love you, man. Glad to have you back here with us today. Our prayer teams are available up front. If you need prayer for anything, please come forward. I think this weekend marks the official end of summer, not, you know, according to scientists that do the moon and that kind of stuff, but for like real people. Um, it's Labor Day, it's our last kind of holiday weekend. Uh, so Josh and John's is out there um, with uh, the scoop bus. So grab some ice cream, hang around with one another, and may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace. And by the spirit of God, would you share his peace with the world around you? In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. We'll see you at the ice cream or around the city. We're back here next Sunday. Love you, New Life Downtown. <laughs>